You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefe, Jennings, Two Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Antonio, the Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, we talked about the English monarchy and the fraught relationship that institution had with its people. We left off with Charles II, King of England of the Stuart dynasty. It's the Stuarts that concern us today. Charles II was the third Stuart monarch to sit the throne of England, but his family held more than just the English throne. They were also the monarchs of Scotland, dating back to the 1300s. Now don't worry, we're not going to talk about the entire history of the Scottish throne, but we will be talking about the Scottish. Not only the Stuart dynasty, but the Stuarts' relationship with the Scottish people, as well as their relationship with the French and the English. This is episode 115, The Killing Time. A reasonable place to start this discussion is Robert the Bruce and his nemesis Edward the Longshanks, Hammer of the Scots. No, I'm not going to devote a lot of time to Robert Bruce, but you should. If you want a great tale of a rebel who fought alongside William Wallace, who engaged in political intrigue and political violence, who killed his rivals in one-on-one combat and was excommunicated for doing so, you should read about Robert the Bruce. It's... The Middle Ages and all of their dirty, violent, uncompromising glory. But what's more important than his personal story is his and Scotland's relationship with France and England. The Bruce rose to power during the First War for Scottish Independence, which began when the Scottish nobles, including Robert Bruce, did two things. They deposed their king, who was a toady of Edward the Longshanks, a man named John Balliol. But then those nobles went on to sign an alliance with the King of the Franks. This was separate from the Franco-Scottish alliance we talked about last time, that alliance in which the Scottish nobles invited the Frankish king over to invade England. But this alliance here, well, it held for centuries. Today, the alliance is known as the Auld Alliance in Scotland, and it's the key to today's story. We're going to see it come up again and again. And we touched on this Scottish War of Independence last time. Mad Max, freedom, leprosy, that whole story. And actually, the leprosy thing is true, unlike the kilts. 
But in the end, Robert the Bruce came out on top. He reigned as king of Scotland and then died of leprosy. His son David, David I of Scotland, took the throne. Now both Robert and David stayed true to the alliance they had made with France. All this time the English were fighting another war over Normandy, Anjou, Aquitaine. They were fighting the One Hundred Years' War. Scotland would provide troops in that conflict, but more on that in a second. King David of Scotland died without an heir, and they had to turn to David's older sister, Marjorie, and to her son, Robert. Now, Marjorie had been married off to probably the second most powerful man in Scotland, William Stuart, High Steward of Scotland. And the similarity between the word steward and the name Stuart is not a coincidence. The word steward is an old English Anglo-Saxon word derived from the words sty and ward. It meant literally hall guard, but we might understand styward as warden of the mead hall. And we see analogs to that title all over Europe. Charles Martel was mayor of the palace before he founded the Carolingian dynasty. All it really means is prime minister, or the top political official and lieutenant to the king. In Scotland, the styward or the steward, was an office founded by a Breton knight that was fleeing the anarchy. Remember Matilda from last time? And that knight established himself as the top officer in the king's councils. He was named Steward, and his descendants kept that title. They became one of the most powerful families in Scotland, known as the Stuarts, and then later on as the Stuarts. When King David died in 1371, his nephew Robert Stuart, High Steward of Scotland, took up the throne, and the Stuart dynasty was born. And it's worth noting the way they spell their name. The early holders of the office of steward spelled their name S-T-E-W-A-R-T, but later Stuart kings would spell their name S-T-U-A-R-T. Partly this might have been to distinguish themselves from stewards, since now they were monarchs, but I think partly it was due to the French influence. The story of the Stuart dynasty is long and fascinating, but we're not going to go into all of that today. I want to focus on the most important element to our story, the Stuart relationship with the French. When Robert Stuart, the founder of their dynasty, took up the throne, he was still a young boy, and the two men who were intended to lead the country in his minority were both killed. England jumped at that opportunity to install their own king in Scotland, and they chose the son and heir of John Balliol, their one-time puppet monarch. And that puppet king sat the throne for some time, but he's considered a pretender today. Robert Stuart, the rightful king, fled to France, where they had an alliance, and he lived there in exile under the protection and tutelage of the Frankish king. He learned the arts of command, of rule, and war, and he earned his chops on the front lines of the Hundred Years' War. He returned to Scotland a man and a leader in the mold of the kings of France. He led the Second War of Scottish Independence to oust the puppet king, and he secured the throne of Scotland for the House of Stuart. Now I'm skipping over all of the battles and intrigues and assassinations and medieval politicking that was going on behind the scenes, but it was an amazing story. However, I do want to look at one pivotal moment. The Battle of Orléans. 
This was in the depths of the Hundred Years' War. It was a time when things looked especially bleak for the French people. The great city of Orléans was under siege by English forces, and there appeared to be no hope of relief in sight. However, the French learned of an English supply convoy on its way, led by Sir John Fastolf. The French decided to stop that convoy and to capture the supplies for their own. The French forces were led by Charles, Duc de Bourbon, a, an ancestor of the Bourbon kings, and his lieutenants, men like La Hire and Jean de Dunois, the bastard of Orléans. However, there was also a Scottish contingent in the battle, led by none other than John Stuart, cousin to the Scottish Stuart King James. Now, John Stuart was killed in the battle that ensued, and he would go on to be buried in Orléans Cathedral. And he was buried with great honor for his service and sacrifice to the French people and the people of Orléans. But despite all that, the French lost their battle to Sir John Festolf, pretty badly, actually. However, at that exact moment, on that exact day, according to legend, there was a teenage peasant girl named Joan, who was warning the Frankish court of the defeat they had just suffered, and she would go on to lead them in the relief of Orléans. Now that's another story, but the point I'm belaboring here is just how close the House of Stuart was to the French crown. Their old alliance was one of necessity, but it served both parties really well. You know, if someone got captured, an army would march in and demand their release, or maybe pay the ransom. If someone suffered a defeat, boom, an army appears to replace them. Someone gets their country invaded, well, their ally would invade elsewhere to force England to pull their troops back to defend their home soil. It was a good alliance. It did suffer a few blows over the years. There was one Stuart king who tried very hard to curry English favor, and he even went so far to fight alongside the English against the French. But his son, also named James, they're all named James, but his son married off a sufficient number of Scottish ladies to French nobles and secured the old alliance. Now let's skip past a number of generations. However, I do want to point out one thing about all of these King's James. I don't know if the Scottish painters of the era were just really bad at their job, and that might actually be the case. They were probably trying to emulate French styles, but, you know, they were new to it. Or if there was some sort of Habsburg level of inbred royalty here. In all of their official portraits, their eyes point in totally opposite directions. They have really weird facial features, and frankly, when we get to better English painters a little later on, the Stuart dynasty looks kind of handsome. But I do want to talk here about James V, or really about his daughter Mary. Mary, as were most Scottish nobles, was tutored in the French court. She was the daughter of the king, and she was fated to marry into a French noble family. However, when her father died without a male heir, Mary was named queen, and her marriage prospects improved significantly. You know, I always find it funny when you hear someone say they should find a man that treats you like a princess. I mean, that's abysmally bad advice. Do you really want to get married off to secure an alliance? But Queen Mary of Scotland, although she was still young, fared far better than most in her situation. She was 16 when she married the French prince, 14 himself, and together they would go on to rule France and Scotland for a single year. 
Then Mary's husband died, and the Scottish queen returned to Scotland, which was a home that she'd never really known. She married a distant cousin, also named Stuart, and set about trying to claim the English crown from Elizabeth. Now, Mary, Queen of Scots, never succeeded, but her son did, if inadvertently. When Queen Elizabeth died with no heir, they had to trace the Tudor line all the way back to Henry VII, and through that line to James VI of Scotland, who had the best claim to the English throne. And of course, we know the story from here. Remember? Remember the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot? Remember Cavaliers and Roundheads, Cromwell, that whole story. But I do want to look at Scotland in the lead-up to the Civil War. See, despite their shared roots, the English Civil War was separate from the strife in Scotland, the main conflict of which was called the Bishops' War. See, Scotland was a Calvinist, Protestant country, and they had a Presbyterian approach to church governance, an approach in which Holy Scripture is law, and they had a council of presbyters to oversee adherence to that law. England, on the other hand, was not Presbyterian. The Anglican Church was Episcopalian, which means that they favored a church organization based upon bishops and bishoprics. This aligned the Anglican Church, in this respect at least, with the Catholic Church. There was a lot of conflict occurring here. James and his son Charles I made some pretty serious tactical mistakes in dealing with the Scottish Presbyterians. They tried to enforce unified religious practices all throughout their kingdoms through, most notoriously, the Book of Common Prayer. And then they would even go on to try to enforce Anglicanism, or at least an Episcopalian approach to their religion, on the Scottish people. The Scottish did not care for all of this one bit. Especially, well, they took it especially hard because it was their own king, a Scottish king that was doing all of this to them. King James was James I of England, but he was James VI of Scotland. However hard the Stuarts might have tried, England and Scotland were not yet a united kingdom, but I can sort of feel for King James and King Charles here. Whatever mistakes they made, and they made a lot, well, they were walking a delicate tightrope. You know, if they favored the Scottish, their homeland... They would be branded foreign usurpers on the English throne, but if they were to favor the English too much, they would be labeled traitors to their Scottish roots. You know, there was no winning for them. Civil war was inevitable. During the English Civil War, the people of Scotland, or really the nobles of Scotland, entered into an alliance with parliamentary forces. That alliance was called the Solemn League and Covenant, that alliance sent Scottish troops into England to fight the forces of the king, a king that they saw now as thoroughly English. It also guaranteed Scottish independence and freedom to practice their Calvinist Presbyterianism. That's really what the Scottish wanted. And of course the Stuarts lost the English Civil War, thanks in large part to Scottish intervention at the Battle of Marston Moor. And Charles I king of England, lost his head. But this is key here. Once the Commonwealth was instated, Cromwell betrayed the Solemn League and Covenant that the Parliamentarians had signed. After all, he was a Puritan zealot, it was in his nature. 
So the Scottish Covenanters, as they would go on to be called, signed another treaty. This was actually also called the Solemn League and Covenant, but it's more well known as the Treaty of Breda. They signed that with the king in exile, Charles II, son of the beheaded king. The Scottish nobles swore to support Charles II in his restoration only if the king would swear to defend their freedom to practice Scottish Presbyterianism. And that's all they really wanted. And the king did so. Charles II signed the Treaty of Breda. But he did so in the court of Louis XIV, where he and his family, including his younger brother James, were currently living in exile. This wasn't exactly a big problem for the Scottish nobles, though. The old alliance was well known, and the relationship between the Stuarts and the kings of France was well known. But very much like so many of their predecessors, these two young princes, Charles and James, they grew into manhood living among the French. They fought alongside the French. They learned from French tutors, and they worshipped alongside the French. Now let's not delve too deeply here, but these two outwardly Anglican princes have so many ties to Catholicism and to the French that it's almost impossible to believe that they would one day sit at the head of the Anglican Church. They had a French Catholic mother, they had a sister who married into a powerful French Catholic family, and both of them would go on to marry Catholic women. But that's something we've covered before, and really it's going to come much more deeply into play next time. But we should talk about these two young monarchs who were born in Episcopalian England, who were raised in deeply Catholic France, and who would go on to sit on the throne of zealously Presbyterian Scotland. But really less about the two brothers and more about their policies as they impacted Scotland. In 1660, Charles enjoyed the restoration to his throne, Now, I say throne and not thrones, because the Scottish Restoration took a little bit longer. The Scottish Parliament deliberated for some time whether or not to allow this king to sit their throne. However, eventually they decided that yes, that's a good idea. It was not a good idea. The Scottish Parliament even took additional steps before allowing him to sit the throne that would placate their erstwhile king. They passed a mass pardon for all of those that had worked for the Commonwealth government, much as had the English government, but they tried and executed many lords and many leaders that were absolutely guilty of treason. This was a sign of good faith and goodwill and loyalty to the king. But King Charles II didn't care. He was embittered toward the Scottish people who had helped oust his father, and he would go on to break his word in a very big way. One of his first acts was to rescind all laws that had been passed in Scotland by the Scottish Parliament all the way back to 1631. All protections that had been laid down in Scotland for Presbyterianism, all treaties and alliances that had been pledged by the Scottish, everything back to 1631. That means that all of his father's awful, foolish, violently anti-Presbyterian and, frankly, anti-Scottish policies were suddenly back in place immediately with the stroke of this kingly pen. English-style Episcopalian church doctrine was forced back into place, 
and it was defended by regiment upon regiment of Scottish royal troops. To most Scots, it looked just like another English king, an heir to Edward the Longshanks, forcing his will upon the people of Scotland. The Stuarts may have been from Scotland, but this was an Englishman and a Frenchman. Suddenly, for some reason, all around Scotland, minstrels were singing ballads of William Wallace and Robert the Bruce. In alehouses, men were decrying the evils of the house of stewards who never should have sat the throne in the first place. After all, they were only stewards. And in Scottish churches, parishioners were showing up wearing all black. You see, they had to attend those services. Legally speaking, they were forced to attend. If they failed to do so, they would wind up with fines and potentially even imprisonment. So they would attend those services dressed in black, and they would sit quietly, never praying or bowing their heads. And then after that fact, they would usually attend a meeting by a chosen Presbyterian pastor in exile immediately following those sham Episcopalian services. But imagine for a moment that you are one of those Scots. Imagine that you have to sit through church listening to some fraud tell you about how great the king is for an hour, but then you get to leave and maybe go grab a drink, and then sit around on the green listening to one of your beloved and respected neighbors talk about, say, the Jews suffering under evil Roman occupation. And then, the next street over, you hear a ruckus, you hear a scuffle, and you hear screams. So you and three of your friends run over to see what all the trouble is, and you see a terrible sight. There was an elderly man, one of your friends maybe, being brutally beaten by a gang of English troops, and his crime was failing to pay the fines for refusing to attend Episcopalian services. What would you do in that situation? For most of us, probably something not unlike what actually happened in the small Scottish town of Dalry in 1666. Those four men ran over and had a brief scuffle with those soldiers, but then the rest of the parishioners showed up on the scene and the troops were surrounded. They surrendered their weapons and the rest of the people grabbed whatever they had to hand. You know, swords and guns if they were available, but most of them, I imagine, pitchforks and torches. But these parishioners marched on the garrison in town, which we should picture less like a keep and more like an Old West sheriff's office. You know, maybe half a dozen guys or so that were sleeping or drinking. Meanwhile, their buddies were beating helpless old men out in the streets. These half a dozen or so brave royal soldiers were detained in their own cells. And moments like these are key. You know, how do you deal with these situations? Word is going to get out that you attacked the king's soldiers. You could just try to sweep it under the rug, quietly release the soldiers, and maybe the king won't have you all killed. Maybe. Or you can push the advantage. And that's what the people of Dollery did. They gathered all of the weapons and foodstuffs they could muster, and then they marched. They marched to a nearby village called Balmacallan, and took the garrison there, 
Now that garrison was even smaller than their own, but that gathered more rebels to their cause. And then they continued their march. I mean, wouldn't you start singing songs about William Wallace in that situation? Wouldn't you picture yourself at the spark of yet another war of Scottish independence? They continued on, taking more villages and hamlets and even a couple of small towns. They were on their way to Edinburgh to see the Scottish Parliament and hopefully to incite the Scottish nation to march for freedom. They were practicing their march into Edinburgh. They were on a parade march when they were happened upon by a force of royal Scottish troops. Now these rebels weren't an army. There were only a couple of hundred men, and they were soundly defeated by these royal troops. The leaders of the rebels were drawn and quartered, and a few managed to escape, but many of these soldiers were taken captive. And it was a short and brutal captivity. They suffered torture of truly medieval quality, and then they ended their lives at the end of a rope. The architect of all of their suffering, and the villain in all of the Covenanter stories, was a man named Archbishop James Sharp. Sharp is traditionally, in Covenanter literature, portrayed as a turncoat in league with the devil. He was there when these Covenanter soldiers were brought into town, and when they were promised a pardon, but then he told them, quote, You were pardoned as soldiers, but you are not acquitted as subjects. End quote. That was immediately before he ordered their feet crushed into pieces with big, heavy rocks. Later on, he would order the local militia commander to break up a Presbyterian gathering just down the street from his church, but the commander replied that that was impossible. See, all of the militiamen were already at the gathering and they were taking part in it. Two years later, a man named James Mitchell, who had taken part in that failed rebellion, who had escaped the massacre, James Mitchell ambushed the archbishop in his carriage, and he attempted to assassinate the archbishop. But James Mitchell failed. Now, he escaped that encounter, but five years later he was captured and arrested. It's hard to say how much of this story is true, and how much is Covenanter propaganda, but James Mitchell was tortured horribly for years, only to finally be executed when things were reaching ahead in 1678. At this point, the Presbyterians went underground. They would attend their government-approved services meekly, but they held secret Presbyterian services out in the hills, far from prying eyes. Those secret services were occasionally broken up by English troops, or, you know, Scottish royal troops, and whenever that happened, the pastor of those gatherings was hanged in full view of his parish. The parishioners were fined, which we should read as robbed at the point of a musket, many of them were tortured, and a few of the girls were raped, the king's justice being served here. But the situation was growing dire in Scotland, it was clear that this state of affairs could not continue indefinitely. Another one of those Presbyterian gatherings occurred on June 1st, 1679, at a place called Ludon Hill. The Reverend Thomas Douglas was giving his sermon when a rider appeared to tell the Reverend that there was a force of royal troops approaching to break up their meeting, and 
submit them to all sorts of atrocities. According to legend, Reverend Douglas turned to those assembled before him and said, quote, Ye have got the theory. Now for the practice. End quote. See, these assembled churchgoers were not there for old-time religion, or rather, they were there to break some very serious commandments in defense of their religion. I do wonder if some of them accidentally let slip to a few key ears exactly where they were going and what they were doing. We do know that when they went, they went armed. When the royal troops showed up with a much larger force, the parishioners were already in position behind a swampy bog named Drumclog, which I promise is real and not from Harry Potter. But the troops, the English troops, would be unable to advance through that bog. Now the two sides sat on other side of the marsh and traded fire, but the Covenanters held their ground and the Royalists were unable to advance on them. The Covenanters had two hundred soldiers, or somewhere thereabouts, but they were smart about it. They had a natural defensive fortification which they put to excellent use, and then they had forty horsemen, a force of musketeers and pikemen, and two reserve units of infantry. For example here, let's say that you had an army of, relatively speaking, that same makeup, and let's say that you had to defeat an army of you know, hypothetically, undead ice monsters intent on the destruction of all mankind. Let me break down for you exactly what you don't want to do here. First, you don't order your horsemen to charge the defensive line of the enemy. That's not what horse are for, at least not until the end of a battle. That's how horsemen and horses, which are expensive and valuable, that's how they die. I don't care how cool it looks when their flaming swords go out one by one, that's not what you do with them. Second, and this is key here, if you have a defensive fortification to use, be it a bog or, say, hypothetically, a flaming trench, you don't want to stand in front of it. I know it's complex here, but you stand behind the defensive fortification, you keep that between yourself and the enemy. Otherwise, that defensive fortification is stupid and useless, and I don't care how cool it looks. Third, you don't not use your artillery. You know, you spent time building it in the first place, so why not, oh, I don't know, fire it! Why don't you fire it on the enemy from afar for as long as you are able to do so? Then... When the enemy begins to advance, when they're committed to the attack, that's when you use the cavalry. You harry their flanks to push them into your defensive fortification, and the shield wall, which is behind the defensive fortification, will guard anywhere that they begin to cross the fortification, anywhere it fails. Then you move in your reserve infantry to hold that formation that your horsemen created, and this is key, you continue to fire on the undead ice monsters. Or, you know, the English, since that's who we're really talking about here. But you hammer away at them with the artillery until they're either dead or retreating. Sending your horse off to die uselessly, putting troops in front of your fortification, placing your artillery 
in front of your fortification? Your ranged units in front of a fortification? What are you thinking? That's how you lose a battle against superior numbers and doom humanity to the long night forever. At least that's how that should work if you weren't concerned with how cool it would look. And if you want proof that a defense like that is meant to fail, look at battles all throughout history that had that same makeup and succeeded. Look at the Battle of Drumclog. The inferior Scottish numbers harried the troops into the bog and their pike wall and then fired on them with artillery and musket fire until the Scottish royal troops surrendered. And then both sides pulled back and spent a few weeks gathering their resources. Now, these Scottish soldiers were better prepared. They had lines of supply and communication, and they sent word to like-minded people all over the region, and this region of southern Scotland was deeply Presbyterian and anti-English. In only a few weeks' time, they had a camp of 6,000 soldiers awaiting orders on the south bank of the Clyde River near a bridge called Bothwell Bridge. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time building this battle up, making you wait eight years only to end it with the single thrust of a dagger. No, I'll tell you the ending immediately. The Scottish lost, and the royal troops won. They had a numerical disadvantage in the battle even, and the English still won big. See, there was strife and division within the Presbyterian ranks. And even more than that, their conscripts were poor soldiers. Really, they weren't soldiers at all. Aside from a few veterans leading them, most of their 6,000 troops were farmers and craftsmen. And then beyond that, they were only moderately well supplied. This wasn't an army. The Duke of Monmouth arrived with 5,000 soldiers, and he pressed for the bridge. It was the only way to cross the river and rout the rebels. Now, at the bridge, the Presbyterians held their ground for about an hour. It even looked for a moment like they were going to push the enemy forces back, but then they started running out of ammunition. It was at that point that Monmouth pushed across the bridge, and the Presbyterian soldiers fled to a nearby estate where they were finally soundly defeated. Now, these soldiers were imprisoned, but they weren't all tortured to death. Instead, they had to make a decision about what to do with these maybe three to 4,000 prisoners. But a proposal was made by a man who has had his fingers in this pot and many other pots this whole time. George Monk, the Duke of Albemarle, was the architect of the Treaty of Breda. He was the man most behind King Charles II's restoration, and he had vast interests in two colonies in particular, Virginia and Jamaica. And right at this very moment, Jamaica needed men to man their garrisons and their coast guard ships. So he suggested that these prisoners be sent to Jamaica. He suggested that they should send an army of rebellious Scots who desperately despised the crown and everything it stood for to an island that had a rich history of piracy and rebelliousness. It's a bold move. And we do know for certain that some of these men served on board the first Pacific adventure, and I would guess that many more that we don't officially know about would go on to serve alongside pirates like William Dampier and Edward Davis, Thomas Paine, and Charles Swan. The Scottish call this entire period 
the killing time, which is a good name. It was a time filled with brutal repression, with torture, and with battle. But the killing time had only just begun for the people of Scotland, and it was about to get a whole lot worse. There was a Presbyterian minister, a leader of the people of the region named Richard Cameron, who would march into the town square of the largest city in this southern Scottish region, a city called Sankar, and he read aloud a proclamation. That proclamation denounced King Charles II. It called him a false king. It called him a king who had lied and betrayed to his own Scottish people. It called for the disbarment of not only the royal authority there in Scotland, but the Scottish Parliament as well, who they saw as nothing but puppets of their king. It called for a return to the, quote, true Protestant and Presbyterian interest of Scotland. This declaration was not unlike that made by Martin Luther, only this declaration was also an open declaration of war. I mean, kind of. It wasn't backed by any nobles or officials, not really. There were certainly plenty of both that were sympathetic to the Presbyterian cause, but none of them had publicly backed this declaration. However, it was enough for the king and his privy council. They announced a new policy of allowing, countenancing, and supporting extrajudicial executions in the field. Remember how King Charles II made the Jamaica proclamation that allowed extrajudicial killings of anyone suspected of piracy, anyone who traded with pirates or communicated with pirates? Well, he would do that in 1683, but that proved only to be a test run. They announced the same thing here in Scotland in 1685. These are totalitarian measures here, folks. These are the efforts made by kings who truly want to establish absolute monarchy in their realm. The royalists there in Scotland executed anyone that was suspected of Presbyterian sympathies. They hanged hundreds of peoples in town squares across the region, but those are only the ones that they wrote down. They left untold more lying dead in the fields of Scotland. It was a bad time. But it should be noted that the king who enacted this piece of policy was not Charles II, Stuart King of England. Charles had always... Well, he was the Merry Monarch. He wanted to rule over a time of peace and prosperity, and he always tried to be restrained, even when his policies were horrible. But his successor, his younger brother James... Now James II, King of England, had no such compunction. It had been hundreds of years since the nobles of Scotland had asked, had begged the King of the Franks to invade England and become a new and hopefully better king. But three years after James II announced his plan to allow killings anywhere that it was deemed necessary, a similar request was made. Many, of the most powerful Scottish nobles affixed their seals and signatures to a document that was begging another foreign king to invade England. Next time, we're going to look at the lead-up to that invasion in England. We're going to look at the Whigs and the Tories and the Glorious Revolution. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, 
everybody who has given us a review or a rating, wherever it is you listen to the show, everybody that has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, and everybody who has recommended this show to your friends and family, without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this. So thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.